had some yeah we'll have to do an offline chat catch up sometime because i i had did some reflecting too on what i've learned here in the last year and a half and how i how productive i feel or how am i learning how can i be even more like adaptive or part of the culture because it the the that there's that that conflict of a long-term culture and a, a holocratic culture that that sometimes clashes with quick action and getting things done and that is part of my DNA and just spent some time thinking about how to use it at the right times and be more adaptive whenever possible and just because that that makes me feel more energized being like part of that as opposed to feeling kind of at odds with it if that makes sense yeah you and I had we went through like maybe a similar exercise I there's this podcast that I really like from Manager Tools called the Deliberate Executive Waypoint. Mm. I'm actually going to send it to you. Yeah, send it to me. I don't know if we've talked about it before, but essentially Dan, the guy who gives the podcast, talks about how in his career he's benefited from taking some time and space, like a focused time and space. Like he was in finance, so he would go the day after Christmas or the day before Christmas into his into the, their New York office and get like a big conference room overlooking the city and have all these post-it notes. And he, he had a bunch of pre-discussions and his performance review and the company strategy and all that stuff and thought about his organization and those kind of things. And, and ultimately culminated in a lot of insights that were distilled into three, what he calls, I will statements. Hmm. And so I did something similar. Nice. Over nice. the break, and it, it helps kind of focus going into the next year. Mm-hmm. And, do you mind? Sounds like you, you did something similar. Yeah, I did. I, I it's not quite as structured as that, but I could, I could put them into I will statements pretty quickly. I think that's that's really interesting. Do you mind sharing any of yours? Yeah, I have. So three. And the funny thing is, in the past, this is probably the third time I've done it. In the past, there's always been a family work life balance one. Mm-hmm. I feel quite balanced right now, though. And so there's not, and I'm wondering how the next three to six months are. Or is if that, it, like, that's interesting. If you don't have one, well, that is at a risk. Yeah, I, I think it's a red flag, but I think mm. these are in pursuit of not being so busy. We've been in freak out crisis mode. We've talked about this, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and so I, what I'm trying to do is get back to some kind of balance in my work heartbeat or cadence, mm-hmm. which I think helps. But yeah, we'll, we'll see. It was it was a little bit illuminating when I didn't have one. But so yeah, I will focus more time for client strategic thinking, relationships, and intellectual capital. Mm. So we're on one of our largest accounts. I spend a lot of time there, but I've actually started even last year getting stuff off my plate that's not client related. There's more than uh, if you take all the people, the leadership team on the account. And all of their full-time efforts, there's more stuff to do than than people and hours to do it. So focusing on that. And then second, I will more intentionally develop the leaders around me. We have a pretty good growth model at the company and, and at our account, but we've always been very light at the top, especially if you look at the percentage of revenue we bring in for the firm and the percentage of the leaders in the firm we have, it's like we we bring in more of a percentage of revenue than we have leadership headcount, if that makes sense, which which is probably right. But I would say now we have a very robust principal, like senior director type group that is looking to get to the next level. And so we can finally scale out more. And that's going to require developing those leaders and then also delegating some of the 
more tactical things that that I'm doing. So there's a virtuous cycle there. And then I will enable a human and growth-oriented transition into our next set of contracts. So they they're like year year at a time. So basically planning out the next year as it relates to remote hybrid working model, good opportunities for growth, trying to get out of some work that we've maybe outgrown or our client could have done for them cheaper and just as well so that we can focus on the the things that really matter. And there, there's a tra- so there's a few different transitions happening at once, but the main thing is growth-oriented, human-focused as it relates to going back to a hybrid model because we don't want to create a, a multicast system like we talked about before. If you have people mm-hmm. com- coming in and being present in person a lot more than others, that could lead to some bad outcomes. So mm-hmm. trying to mitigate that and, and really navigate that piece, which I, which I think is coming here in the next couple months. Yeah. Yeah. Those are good. Those are really good. Yeah. I'll, I'll like to hear what happens in, in three to six months. If you're feeling, still feeling like your, like your balance has become your normal and, and it doesn't need a direct focus or if it slips, if it slips a little bit because you don't have that. I'm curious, but you know, also I have, I have stuff on my calendar, like for picking up my son and things like that. So I, I don't, and I kind of have some boundaries on the start and stop times of my days. And so I think, I don't know, I feel pretty good about it, but we'll see. I've definitely dipped into the workaholic mode before, and that's not what I'm looking to do here. And, and I don't, I don't feel a pull to lean more heavily into work. I don't feel pressured to do that, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I just, I do feel like things are are fairly balanced, like they are. Good. Part of that has to do with me not driving two hours a day, yeah, uh, and and recapturing that time. But we'll see. I don't, I don't know. I'll I'll give you an update here in a few months. Yeah, now. cool. That's good. That's good. But it feels good. I mean, to your point too, which is, I wish we would have talked about this last year. I just didn't think about it. But coming into January third, right, January fourth today, with some clarity of vision about what you want to do. Ah, oh, it's mm-hmm. so. It's so empowering and everyone's slowly getting back up to speed. And before we know it, January will be over, the year will be almost 10% over. And and then you're just behind. <laughs> yeah. But now it's like day one, you kind of know you're ready to take action. Wow. And, and I think that's pretty cool. Wait a second. did Have you and I been doing our podcast for a year? Because I, I feel so. like you said that to me a year ago. The year is 10% over. Yeah, I got that from Manager Tools. And I, that makes me think that... We have been at this for almost a year. Maybe, you, it's it's. I think it's been almost a year. Okay, let me look. It, we me may have it. started in February, and you might or something, and you might have said it then. Okay, episode one was published on November 2020. So, and it's 2022. So it's over a year. Yeah. Wow. Nice. Happy hey, anniversary. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize. Although I think we were going back, we were on a bit of a hiatus around yeah. November, December. Yeah. So. Yeah. Which is okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I certainly listed this podcast as one of my my accomplishments or things I was most proud of structurally, work wise and I think structurally it's been great. in twenty twenty one. It it has felt like it's given me a lot of focus around what am I what do I really excel at? How am I best at communicating those kinds of things? And then what does that mean for the future? What do I bring? How do I add the most value? to my colleagues and mentees and clients and it, it really is through this lens. It's a unique one. 
And I think a lot of that has come from focus on the podcast last year. Yeah. I mean, not only, I think, have we furthered our thinking in, in a few areas, but and gained clarity such that it's informed our leadership style, but there's also, I think, some original thought. Yeah. Lots of original thought buried in, yep. what episode is this, 28? I think you 28? said 28. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Cool. Well, hey, let's get it. to the chapter. Yeah. The joy of being wrong. <laughs> there, w- there was a great part in here where it said, the more you can laugh at yourself, the happier you tend, people tend to be. Like there's some data to back that up. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. oh, that's perfect. Cause yeah. I do feel like I'm always making fun of myself. So same. That same. made me feel good. <laughs> it's always nice when you, when you hear something that you just kind of do by default. Yes. And, and someone says, oh, that's actually like a good thing that you're doing. That's awesome. Yeah. I had the same thought and I actually gave some thought to how I got there at this point in my career. So I had a big, a kind of big birthday in late December. And then I always think about, well, how many years? I'm 45. So I think like, how many years have I been consulting? How many years? And how do you get to that point? How did, what ha- Was there something that happened? Is it part of your DNA? Was it part of your childhood upbringing? Or what is it that led you to kind of embrace this, this, the joy in being wrong or the ability to laugh at yourself, the ability to kind of quickly let go of things and and pivot and course correct. And I, I, I'm, I like to believe I'm pretty good at it in most areas. And there are always, no, I do hold to my beliefs <laughs> and maybe I shouldn't. And, and then there's always the ones you should hold to. So just, do you have any, any insight at all into a catalyst for yourself? Well, I, okay. So I don't know. I do think though, that was born out of this leadership transition that I know we've talked about on the podcast before where like I, I'm, I'm pretty, I don't even know the word, bring a lot of levity to situations. Like I, I don't tend to take stuff too seriously. I would say I have an above average sense of humor, which sounds weird to say out loud, dryly. <laughs> I am funny. <laughs> I'm funny, I promise. You um, actually are pretty funny. <laughs> thank you. And so we, it's when you're, when you're part of a team and you're an individual contributor, when you're on a hockey team or whatever, there's a sort of gallows humor that's acceptable and and actually kind of required, right? Whatever the culture is, some are maybe more vulgar than others, but there's a culture around humor among peers. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was I was good at much better at giving than getting, right? If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then when I got some role power though, you can't you can't bring that same level of like funny, jovial criticism to your your coworkers because you have role power over them. Right. And then it then it's viewed as an attack. And so I had to adjust pretty quickly. And the easiest target to turn the exact same level of humor on is yourself. And so that was like a a shift I made out of like the need to not make everyone hate me mm. and and quit. Right. And so I've just kind of stuck with it. That's good. Since then, but I think over time, it's a good way to diffuse situations, to take responsibility. So if you, you're really open about stuff you messed up on and could have done better, usually people give you... There was a, Actually, there's a story about that in the chapter, right? There was a, an astrophysicist who made some huge discovery around like a collapsed star or something and was going to go present his findings to like a, a, a stadium full of his peers. And right before the the presentation realized that he used like a spherical, a circular orbit instead of an elliptical orbit, which is, I mean, that's going to make your math all sorts of wrong. (laughs) Figured it out. The planet wasn't where he thought it was. 
it was a non-discovery and realized it's way, way, way too late to do anything about it, but got up on stage and kind of outlined what he did wrong and why and and how this wasn't a discovery at all. And that got a standing ovation and was probably a highlight of his career. And people said that it was the most honorable thing they'd ever seen all out of taking ownership for a mistake. It, it doesn't always work that way. I mean, sometimes you just get fired, right? <laughs> yeah. But it's definitely helpful to to remember that, you know, this this chapter especially is full of people who take their ideas very seriously, but themselves not so seriously. And and I think that's a, a healthy way to live for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. appreciated that example for sure, because it's a great reminder. I mean, it may not always be the highlight of your career, like you said, but it it does tend to leave an imprint on the people around you, at least in my experience. And it's certainly, it's, it's become a bit habitual for me. As I, I mean, I, I did have some time to reflect on how did I, how did I get to that point? I'm not, no one's born with like this, these crazy mental alignments and, and levels of humility. It's not, certainly not that. I think some of, some of my approach to laughing at myself or not taking my own ideas too seriously have even become a, a, a technique. Because in, in, in my career, I, I was blessed enough to be promoted pretty quickly at young age, at a young age and consulting. There's always a different dynamic with the way a client perceives you. And then you, you already mentioned people's, this kind of title hierarchy. And I found that if I was not attached to my own ideas and I presented it as such or left so much openness in any sort of discussion for people to challenge an idea of mine, even if I had the experience to know that I was right, simply setting the stage differently brought out more creativity in other people or say, or setting the stage and saying, I'm not attached to this thing. It's just a thought. Let's, let's, throw it at the wall and see if it sticks or throw darts at it and see what what we can hit. I found that over time that that opened people up and uh, some of those dynamics I formed in response to different cultures too because I was an American a perceived successful American traveling to specifically Asian culture, even more specifically Indian culture and also African culture. And there's a there's a response there to for people to be more subservient, and in order for me to be their their manager, and at the same time want to get all the great thoughts they had, I had to come up with something a bit more extreme as a as an approach. And it, it certainly served me well, but I don't know that I would have developed that had it not been for such a kind of dramatic, like a dramatic scenario in which I needed to operate. And and the cool part about this, or at least I guess the most um, encouraging part of this chapter, which could be viewed as a little bit dark, right? Like we have all these sort of desirability biases and we get very attached to ideas that not because they're true, but because they're interesting, which is not not a good thing, not a recipe for success. And then there's the stories around the the professional forecasters and the ones that sort of forecast things for the, like forecasting games and stuff it sounds pretty cool actually and they studied the best forecasters for predicting the future and most the the average number of times like an issue is rethought through as two by people who do this competitively and the very best ones are like four or five which 
doesn't seem like a lot. At least it's not hundreds. But I mean, the, the there's a lot of human friction there to rethink th- something once. I mean, people have have died over not willing to to rethink an idea once, let alone four or five times. But it it does make it maybe a little bit more achievable. And then I I, I loved the reframing of I want to be the best at forecasting more than I want to be right about something I prefer. Or like, what is the sort of mental trick you can play on yourself to, to cause you to want to to dig in and and rethink things? And mm-hmm. so I thought that was was kind of some nice silver lining to this pretty damaging, like a uh, dangerous human condition mm-hmm. <laughs> that we all share. Yeah, I really liked that example as well. It was very very challenging to me to as a a somewhat competitive person. I mean, I think I'm situationally competitive. And you've you've stated on other podcasts that you're very competitive. Too, too competitive. Yeah. I, I think that is a that's a really great mind trick to find the other thing that you can compete in or reframe success essentially for yourself, even if it's just between you and you or or you and say the team that you're supporting as a manager, as a leader, how how do you reframe your own success through the lens of their success such that you such that you're you're willing to to challenge yourself rethink yourself in include different kinds of contributions we i think we have an advantage in being part of mainstream agile development or scrum techniques and 15 20 years ago before that was mainstream, it was a whole different ballgame of challenging a norm. Re-estimating was not acceptable. Like it's in seen a as more, failure. Right? Yeah, Absolutely. that's a great point. Yeah. So I think Agile ha- being mainstream has allowed us to... Yeah, wait, don't get too excited yet because I have bad news. Agile has, has created a vocabulary and a structure where both in the macro and micro, it is not just acceptable to, to reforecast, but it is expected. And we've talked about this dichotomy before, and there, there are no, there's no, no clear answer here, but I'll just bring it up again. I think the, the flip side that is not yet solved is as humans and as leaders are, by and large, our lack of willingness to embrace complexity in our thinking. And complexity doesn't always have a resolution. It just has a way forward. One would need to, something that a complicated scenario would have a resolution. A complex one does not. So it's, there's a, there's a way, there's a way forward that just requires this constant course correcting with complex thinking. It requires reforecasting, rethinking, reassessing. But what it doesn't give you is the definitive outcome. And we're like COVID is yet a perfect example of that, how we continue to, we as humans continue to look for the outcome, the solution, the resolution, when will things be resolved to XYZ definition. And the most complex thinkers are comfortable saying, we simply don't know, and we're going to do the best we can. And that's, and then we will continue to reflect in a corporate environment, that's hard. It's very hard. That's not how the stock market works. So it's not how corporations work. And I, I, this, this continues to puzzle me. So I'll just lay that out there for you. <laughs> I'm just processing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and so you, 
<laughs> you get this buildup, like the these like attachment issues that the chapter talks about, which is like too closely relating your past and your present, and then separating your opinions from your identity. And so there's this sort of, I, I think to your point, these attachment, unhealthy attachments to ideas played out at scale mm-hmm. in an organization. So, so you have some of those things create ripple effects, dangerous ripple effects, which are larger and wider because you have people pushing in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And then you have tension and conflict where maybe there shouldn't be because of the sort of over-attachment to these, to these ideas? Well, I think corporate structures in general are not designed for flexible thinking and reforecasting. And I mean at the highest level. So while the good news is with, with, an agile, with agile thinking, one's, say, say, an entire IT department's work is structured such that it continually reforecasts so that it gives an it gives accurate estimations even at the at the program levels so that communication to clients is more accurate so that projection of costs is more accurate okay great but if we took that up to the board level what sort of tolerance does a board have for a continual reforecasting continual rethinking not the I mean, my experience is not much, not much. Anything that is outside of a calendar boundary of sorts, twice a year, once a year, doesn't, and that's, there's not a lot of tolerance for it. It, It's seen as being irresponsible or inept at worst. When I think if we took this concept and challenged the corporate America structure and said, it's great that you hold to a standard and people meet, maybe even meet what they estimate, but is accuracy of forecast a good business outcome? Is it a good, is it a good environmental outcome? Is it a good human outcome? Versus saying, well, we could break all of our norms and we could, we could change our highest level processes of defining success. But how would that work? What would be the ripple effects in our, inside our firm? And how would we then explain that to all the external parties we're responsible to? That's interesting to accuracy of forecast. It, like the more accurate your forecasts are, maybe, the, maybe that's a red flag. I, I think in, I'm comparing experience with technology of the accuracy of the forecast, especially when there's constant reforecasting to being a very good thing with the accuracy of a forecast sometimes at the operational level. Perhaps the forecast shouldn't have been accurate. There should have been a change in spending increase or decrease because it was the right thing to do for any number of other reasons. So maybe it was too safe or it took too long to come up with or you're not stretching enough or there's lots of reasons why maybe you're, you're playing it safe across larger time spans versus accurate because it's like you're driving a car down the road. You're you're never actually going straight, right? You're, you're making all these sort of constant micro adjustments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think this mindset is a really important one. I can't say that, it, that this is the most important chapter in the book, but there is something here that is, it so goes against the grain of who, of what makes us comfortable as humans. And we already know that's who we take to work. <laughs> it's just like our, our same characteristics are how we lead. And 
there is something around constantly challenging our own norms, not being emotionally attached, not being willing to redefine our success criteria. I'm going to be a much more accurate forecaster than I am going to be attached to this belief system. Obviously, these things, these statements I'm making, I don't think are absolutes, but I, I feel like there has, there, there needs to be more room for that in the future of corporate America. Yeah. And, and there is like a decision journal, and it doesn't call it that specifically kind of thread here where when big forecasts are made, big predictions, big bets, big decisions, whatever, the things that have some meat behind them, there's usually like these super forecasters would go in and kind of enumerate what, what they, what they might have wrong, what they don't know, or what kinds of things would cause them to rethink the whole situation if certain conditions happened or if they learned new information. You know, it's, it even says research suggests that identi- identifying even a single reason why we might be wrong can be enough to curb overconfidence. Yeah. And so there's almost all this like meta information that needs to go along with larger decisions that sort of outline a little more objectively. Here's what we don't know. Here's what we do know. Here's where we might be wrong. Here's where we're probably wrong. But those kind of things. And I think that'll add some robustness and also detach. Well, I, I loved that word mm-hmm. that you used here. It's like detaching from ideas and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. I I appreciated, too, the story of the, the election forecaster, a French name. I can't remember. Jean-Paul. I can't remember the last his surname at the moment. Where he the way he he claims he became so accurate was to go out and and find proof points to prove other election forecasters wrong it and so it didn't matter to him what he believed in his quest to be a better forecaster he did the opposite the he did research for the opposite for the opposing side yeah and they they talk about that too like steel manning arguments when when there's like a big debate each they Sometimes the, oh my gosh, the name totally escaped me. The moderator will have each contestant, each participant introduce the other and then summarize the other person's argument. And so that's kind of a way to prove that you've, you've thought it through and you've, you could take the other, the other opinion. Mm-hmm. There's a quote in here that's being wrong actually is the only way to, to without a shadow of a doubt, without a shadow of a doubt know that you learned something mm-hmm. <laughs> that you moved forward, right? Is it, You only know that by being wrong. Yeah. By learning that you were wrong. And so those things are all, I think, tied up in the the practice of that these groups of, of forecasters do or and that's equally as applicable to executive life, individual contributors, parenting, friendship, like mm-hmm. any 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 area of life this is this is directly applicable to. Mm-hmm. You probably have. I certainly have spoken to people personally and professionally in in my past who really struggle with admitting wrong for any, I mean, on any topic, it's a really boring conversation very quickly. I not only lose respect for people like that, regardless of who they are, but I find that I like to have my thinking challenged even just for the sake of interesting conversation. I like to hear other people's perspectives and it does impact me. It impacts my personal growth, which then bleeds into the kind of partner I am and the kind of leader I am. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. This was a good chapter. I do like he says, a standard defense when you're wrong is I'm entitled to my opinion. And yeah, you're entitled to 
hold opinions inside your head. If you choose to express them out loud, it's your responsibility to ground them in logic and facts and share your reasoning with others. Yeah. And change your mind when better evidence emerges. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's if you could change one thing about the world and you change that one thing, I think (laughs) that would have a pretty... Oh my, I also had highlighted that one because it felt to me like, sorry, I think that was me pressing on my keyboard. It felt to me, it was, it was a a brilliant statement of this freedom to have opinions and also the, uh, the, the freedom to be responsible. We, we, I don't think we would have an issue with fake news if we, if there was an ability to hold people accountable to the things that come out of their mouths or come through their their keyboards <laughs> typed into comments online. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you, you take on implicitly, I guess, maybe a responsibility when you get behind the wheel of your car. Yeah. But, and and at least that's kind of subconsciously or, or intentionally understood at times, but expressing your opinions out loud comes with it a tremendous yeah. responsibility that I don't think is... Now that talk about detachment, like the, the responsibility of advocating for and, and explaining your opinion is not ever coupled with expressing that opinion. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And I think when when I mean you have young children. When we're kids, it seems, or at least when I was a kid, it manifested itself more as be kind, think before you speak just basic golden rule type things. And I'm sure that's what it sounds like in your house too, just the way, what I know of you and Diana. But I don't, I, how do we lose that as adults? How do we lose the, those basic responsibilities? Because it is a responsibility. If I have to open my, if I open my mouth and my responsibility is to be kind, to be considerate, whatever, then when I drop that into a corporate setting, all of a sudden I'm not responsible for that anymore. I'm not, and you get irate when politicians or social media companies or people on social media or bots or malicious actors or other humans, not you, do that to you. Mm-hmm. You you feel a level of of anger that's hard to replicate any other way, yet we don't really think, I never think about that. Like mm-hmm. I, And so I, I was kind of eye-opening yeah. to me hidden at the end of the chapter there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was good. Sometimes, I guess it doesn't matter how we get there, our ability to embrace being wrong. Sometimes I think for me, it was also like imposter syndrome. Like I'm stepping into a very different kind of career than I thought I would be in. So I will have to embrace this because it's it's reality, but it doesn't really matter how you get there as long as you're willing to constantly be on guard for that. So let me run this by you because I don't, I just popped into my head. I don't even know if it's going to make sense. You and I, in our position, it's all—it's like we have the luxury of being able to be wrong more. It—it it seems counterintuitive because we we may be making a, a financial decision that can impact a hundred people, right? So that the stakes are higher. But I remember—I mean, growing up as a software developer, being an individual contributor, the your whole like performance review was centered around you being correct, mm-hmm. accurate, right? It's—it's it's one thing to not be able to tell the future and plan perfectly, okay, fine. And Agile tries to mitigate that like we talked about. But to create software with defects where you you should know better, like professionals, if you're in the NFL, you don't run your route, right? Or you're a chef, you don't wash your hands. Or you're an opera singer and your voice is all crackly because you ate too much salsa the day before. Like <laughs> the, These things like shouldn't happen, right? And so there there's a level of 
accuracy or precision mm-hmm. that I think the more junior you are, the more important that is, not not being wrong about but but maybe that's just more like on the analytical side. If you're writing software, like it maybe it works or it doesn't as far as you may not do the right things, but at least it does it correctly. Like it doesn't crash on you or something. I, I don't know. I'm kind of at the point where I'm rambling now, but I think the more senior you get, the more lenience there is for being wrong and adjusting and adapting. And if you take that mentality that you had as an individual contributor, as an accountant, making sure that both sides of the calculation balance is not what you should be bringing to the complex world of leadership, of trying to predict the future, of where's this product or organization going. It's almost a different mentality, but we treat them as if they're the same. That makes sense to me. I can't I can't quite put my finger on all the nuance. Just I'm I'm also still processing. But what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And now I mean at our company, I think we are rare in that even as a junior individual contributor, there's a piece of your success measures that are very tangible and analytical and literal. And then there's a piece that are very subjective and about developing you as a higher level thinker, developing you as a human. Identifying issues and risks is one. Yes. Like even at the most college higher newest level, there's still expectations around well, something's thinking, not right here. Like maybe yeah. I should escalate this in the right way, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And even even if you're wrong, if you identified, you you thought to identify something and you identified it in the right way. I think that's encouraged. But 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 our culture is rare. So taking it outside of our our development process, our effectiveness framework, more standard job experiences, you you are right in that we look for people, we look for accuracy at certain levels. But there's also accuracy at greater levels. I think it's just for different things. Like a I mean, a, a brain surgeon has to be equally accurate even if they're just starting out as a surgeon or if they've been a surgeon for 20 years. But they might have to be more accurate at training others or accurate at policy, perhaps, in a hospital or recommendations to medical boards versus having a scalpel or robotics at this point, I guess. But the the I guess it's maybe the accuracy, maybe it's more about the impact versus the my, the minutia of the accuracy that is that needs to be present for junior for people who are more junior in their career. Just thinking out loud. Yeah, yeah. There there is a impact or like what what kind like what kind of space are you in? Like I think Neil deGrasse Tyson had a good quote where he said, "Let's say I don't care if people think the Earth is flat. I just you can go off and and think that cool. I just don't want you creating policy." thinking that the earth is flat. And so I think there's some benign core, I don't know if I'd call it a core belief, but points of view. But then you enter this zone of impact where I think things need to be a little bit more careful. Mm -hmm. It would be exhausting to do for 100% of the things you think and feel that this book recommends. I don't think it's, it's certainly not saying that, but chapter Mm -mm. one, I think was, was talking about not doing that. But there are moments in time where the stakes are higher where more people are impacted, those types of things, where that's when it makes sense to have some practice around 
rethinking, documenting what what could go wrong, what would make what why you could be wrong, thinking that through those kind of things. I think that's where the, the real benefit is. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, I guess one identifying when you're when you're in that situation. Yeah, yeah, that's a great thought, though. Thank you for processing that out loud. Well, I'm not sure how helpful it was, but we'll see. Cool. Anything else on this chapter? Don't think so. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Cool. I'm, I'm going to read the last paragraph, if that's okay with yeah, you. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Every time we encounter new information, we have a choice. We can attach our opinions to our identities and stand our ground in the stubbornness of preaching and prosecuting, or we can operate more like scientists, defining ourselves as people committed to the pursuit of truth, even if it means proving our own views wrong. And the main thing I think I want to take away from there is reframing what being right looks like. They did talk about scientists care about being right in the final analysis, mm-hmm. right? Not not in the next, not in the next day or week or month, but in, in the long term. And I like thinking through I, I do want to maybe spend some time on what do I want to be measured as, right? Where maybe I want the people that work under my care to have had the best team experience they've ever had in their careers when they join my team. And that that's a whole different, that has nothing to do with accuracy, precision, being right, <laughs> none of that. And so if I find myself getting impatient, when, when I would get, in the, I don't know if the book's going to cover this in the future, but when I get kind of hung on ideas, it's because of impatience usually for me. I just want to get going. Mm-hmm. And I don't like, I've already, we've already talked about this. We've already, I don't want to go back because I don't like rewatching movies. I don't like rereading books. I don't like redoing homework. And once it's done, I want to check it off and move on. Mm-hmm. And that's not, and that's definitely born out of competitiveness, right? And so that kind of hurry, though, is not, is not helpful. So maybe reframing in those moments would be helpful. But mm-hmm. anyway, maybe we can, maybe we'll get to that later in the book. Mm. Yes, that'll be interesting. Cool, man. Right. This was good. Well, it's good seeing you. Happy good to New see Year. you too. Thank you. Thank you. This will probably come out sometime in February, so it'll sound weird. <laughs> if you've made it this far, thank you. It's okay. So our forecast was a little off. <laughs> Sorry. It was a joy yeah. anyway. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, have a good week. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye.